when they decided to play the Billy Graham uh, message, I'm like, that's a tough act to follow. <laughs> Not sure if I want Billy Graham up on the screen anytime I'm around. Like, oh great, I'm up there. Man, I apologize. Um, who do you trust? Do you trust the media? No. Facebook? No. Twitter? The government, your neighbor, when he's putting up the fence, are you like, hmm, that seems like it's a foot on my side, right? Like, who do you trust? You trust people that do what they say, that have a history of keeping their word. So this year, we have a simple saying that has encapsulated for us what is Easter. And it's just as he said. And it's in the gospel of Matthew when the empty tomb is discovered and they're shocked, the angel says, hey, he told you he was going to rise and he did it just as he said. That Easter, what we're doing this morning is a celebration of mission accomplished. That everything that Jesus said he was going to do, Jesus did. And you may be wondering, what did Jesus say he was going to do? Well, we're gonna look at a section of scripture at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry where he lays out, this is my ministry, this is my mission, this is what I'm going to do, and it's brilliant. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter four, beginning in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, this is Jesus, where he'd been brought up, hometown. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it's written. I like the fact that it says it was his custom on the Sabbath day to be in the synagogue. Jesus went to church every week. Not once a year. I find that very interesting. <laughs> and in the synagogue, they would have a very formal section. And after that formal section was done, if somebody had something that they wanted to add or to say, they could stand up. And it meant, hey, could I say something? So that's what Jesus does. He comes to his hometown church, hasn't been there for a while. He hears the formal part. And then after it's over, he stands up, meaning I have something to say. And he probably requested the scroll of Isaiah. Can I read from the scroll of Isaiah? So he gets the scroll of Isaiah and the Bible says he found the place where it was written. we now got a great scroll of Isaiah discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
I've seen it the last time I was in Israel. It's magnificent. It's over 24 feet long. There's no chapters, there's no verses, there's no pages. It's just continual 0.7 font. Look at, here's a picture of it. Maybe. There it is. Imagine trying to find one line in that scroll. How hard would that be? That'd be like trying to find a seat this morning (laughs) or trying to park your car (laughs) or trying to find the book of Habakkuk, right? You're like, what? Is that in the Bible? I didn't think so, right? Jesus gets this scroll. It would be all rolled up. He's got to be unrolling one side and rolling the other one as he looks for a very specific text. How long would it take him to do that? Probably 10 minutes, right? So he's up there just 10 minutes scanning the scroll of Isaiah to find the place where it's written. And everyone's just kind of waiting for him like, okay, this better be good. Whatever he's saying, it better be good. And he reads for like 30 seconds and then just sits down. It's like, hmm, interesting, okay? And what he's gonna say is this from a very familiar passage because it was messianic. And Israel was looking for their deliverer at this time. And what he's gonna say is that prophecy written hundreds and hundreds of years before my birth, that prophecy, it's me. I'm fulfilling it. I'm doing this. So what is it? Let's read. Verse 18, from the scroll of Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here's his mission. Number one, I'm here to proclaim good news to the poor. What would be good news to a poor person? You won the lottery. That would be good news. Okay. Someone paid all your bills. Mm, That'd be good news. Helps on its way. That's good news. Your stimulus check just dropped. Amazon.com, what am I buying, right? (laughs) You have an inheritance. You have a rich uncle who just passed away and left you everything, right? That's good news. It's free. That's good news to poor people, right? That's good news. So here's what Jesus does. He comes on the scene, comes back to his hometown, and the first thing he says is this, I'm here to proclaim good news to poor people. That my target audience is the poor. In the Sermon on the Mount, his first recorded message that we have, Jesus begins that message by saying this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying, I left heaven, comfort. I left privilege and power, became an infant, got sick, got tired, got hungry, got betrayed, got beaten, got crucified. I'm gonna be resurrected and I'm doing all of this. My target audience is not the pretty or the popular 
or the powerful or the rich. It's not those that are doing pretty good, giving it their doggone best. I'm doing it for those with poor spirits, for those that are broken, for the bankrupt. In fact, Psalm 2.8 has this. It's a great little prophecy. It's Jesus talking about what he wants for an inheritance and he asks for the heathens. I want the heathens for an inheritance. Who chooses like that? If I've got a choice, I don't want the heathen. Jesus does. If you're an employer, would you choose like that? So you got a job opening and you decide to put it out there and some guy comes rolling up on his bicycle like to apply for the job. You're like, do you have a driver's license? No, but dude, they weren't my drugs. Okay, right? Got a giant marijuana tea on and you're like, well, let's ask you some questions here. Did you get your high school diploma? No. Did you get your GED? No, my ride jonesed on me. I just couldn't do it. Okay. Do you have anything that might impair your ability to do the job here? Yeah, I got a real drinking problem. It's like a case a day or so, but uh, trying to get better. I'm trying to drop it down a little bit. I got narcolepsy. Like all of a sudden I'll just fall asleep. <sighs> How time is it, right? But, but here's the deal. I show up late, but I make up for it by leaving early for you. And then I got a real problem stealing. In fact, I have your wallet right now. You want it back? Okay. And I'm a compulsive texter. Hold on. Wait, wait, no, hold on. Right? What employer would be like, you are perfect. You're exactly what I want. Welcome to the U.S. Congress. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Jesus was motivated like that. Give me the heathen for an inheritance. That's who I want. And when you look at Scripture, Jesus constantly moved toward the prostitutes and the drunks and the sinners and the pagans and the bankrupt. And he says this, Matthew 11, come unto me, all who are nailing it, all who have it down, all who are keeping the law. Nope. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest to your soul. I'm going to give it to you. You won't earn it, and you don't deserve it. And this enraged the religious elite who believed they deserved all the goods from God because they pulled off the moral code better than other people. It enraged them. Jesus says, I'm gonna give it to you. It removed all the basis for which they believed they were privileged. Nope, a gift to you. Number one, good news to the poor. And what you see for 2,000 years is the gospel has always infiltrated the bankrupt and the broken and the poor in spirit and the prostitutes and the drunkards first. That for 2,000 years, it's just as he said. Proclaimed good news to the poor. Number two, liberty to the captives. People that are trapped People that feel like, I can't get free of this thing. People are owned by stuff. Jesus says, I can set you free from bondage. I can do that. Well, how? Well, let's say you have a sin that you struggle with. 
It's a besetting sin. Every time you have opportunity, you do it. Let's say it's speeding on Interstate 5, because we all do that, right? The moment you get out there, it's not 65, right? You got 10 miles per hour, easy, 75. And you know what? Everyone else is doing 80, so I'm doing 80 with them, right? Hard to break that, right? And you save a little bit of time, feels good. You get out of the way, it's awesome, right? And you do it all the time. What will help you break that besetting sin? How about a state trooper pulling right behind you? Do you all of a sudden find a power to do 65? Like, amazing. I don't know what happened. All the way to Medford, I did 65. <laughs> what happened? A greater power interrupted you. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the greater power. It does not matter what you're captive to. It does not matter what sin owns you. Lust, greed, selfishness, anger, vengefulness, pornography, I don't care what it is, sexual sin, does not matter. Jesus is greater than your sin. And he says, I can set you free. Let him set you free. Well, how? First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. That is how. It is a lifestyle of confession and repentance. That's how you're changed. You're giving Jesus permission to change you. That's what you do with 1 John 1, 9. And we're studying that next week. Because surprise, surprise, we do this every week. And you're invited. <laughs> right? He sets captives free. And for 2,000 years, captives have been set free just as he said. Number three, the recovering of sight to the blind. Now, literally, Jesus did that. But I think there's another blindness that can happen to a lot of us. And it's found in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, where Paul writes that Satan has blinded the eyes of people. That we have an enemy who is really, really good at getting us to miss what actually matters in life and what's actually important. He's super good at it. And what happens is, I think time does this thing to us. That as we grow older, the days begin to just melt into weeks and weeks melt into months and months melt into years and years melt into decades. And it's like we're blind zombies just going through life until one day we're like, what happened? I'm old. What happened? I used to be young. What happened? Right? It happens to us all. There's only one group of people that I've seen that do not fall into that condition. You know who they are? Children. Children don't do that. Children live every day with this like expectancy, don't they? It's why they don't like to go to sleep. Mm hmm. Right? I had my son Elijah many years ago. Uh, he was like two years old. And I haven't met, actually, none of my kids like to go take a nap. None of them like to go to sleep, right? They do now, but they did not then. So um, I had the kids this weekend. My wife was out of town. And so I took them 
We made a big old breakfast. We went into town. It was a Saturday. Went to the growers market. It was a beautiful day. After the growers market, it was hot dog at pharmacy and a 25 cent phosphate. What a brilliant deal that was. Man, for like $2, I would feed my kids. It's amazing, right? So we're at the pharmacy and Elijah's just two then. I start seeing that he's crumbling. He's getting tired, right? But here's what I do. I never tell my kids they're tired and they take a nap because then they want to fight you. So I just said, hey, we're going to go home now. And Elijah looked at me. He knew what that meant. He goes, dad, I am not tired. I don't need a nap. I don't argue with him. I said, no, no problem. So I loaded him up in my 1966 Volkswagen van, get him in his car seat, and we start up. Here's the great thing about a Volkswagen van. It has just enough of an exhaust leak (laughs) to put you to sleep without killing you. It's like the original family-friendly van, right? So we get traveling, and man, he goes to sleep. We hit this turn on Cloverlawn. We take the turn, I, I turn, and, and you're not turning very sharp in a Volkswagen van, so I turn it just a little bit. Elijah wakes up, he looks at me, he goes, Dad, I don't need a nap, and falls right back asleep. <laughs> Kids, they do that, right? But then something happens over the course of life where now it's not trying to escape naps, we're looking for any opportunity to nap, like church, <laughs> right? <laughs> What changed? Kids live as if the next moment could be the best moment. That's how they live. They live with this expectancy of great things. I think Jesus came to bring that. He came to bring a different style of life where you expect the king could do great things today. Listen to Isaiah 60 verse one, one of my favorite little verses. It says, arise. Your light has shown, past tense, you got it. And the glory, it's the Hebrew word kavod, which means the weight, the substance, the essence of God. The glory of Yahweh is upon you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have light and you have the very essence, the substance, the weight of God himself. How could you not live with, expect, with, that, with expectancy? The creator has his power on you. Or Ephesians 2.10, God has created good works for every believer in advance for us to walk in. Today, there are good works that you and I can partner with the creator and sustainer of the universe and walk in them. Or John 10.10, I've come that you might have life in it more abundantly. Or 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, eye has not seen, ear has not heard the wonderful things that God has in store for those that love us. How do we live that kind of life? Read the story of Jesus over and over and over because that's what he did. And what Jesus did was this. He took his light and he brought it to the darkest spots. And when he did that, he just reversed everything that people believed. He goes, if you want to be great, what should you do? Become a servant for all. If you want to be first, what should you do? Become last. If you want to find your life, what should you do? Lose your life for my sake, right? If you want to inherit the kingdom, 
Jesus says, then you better start growing young again and become like a child. Like everything, Jesus reverses. Because he says, life is to be lived a different way. And that's the way he did. He went after prostitutes and he went after drunks and he went into dark spots, right? He was always confounding the religious people. They got mad at him. He made wine at a wedding feast. The Baptists are still trying to figure that one out. It was grape juice, I tell you, it was not wine. All right, whatever. Jesus has a different way to live. And when you and I begin to engage with him, he gives us the kind of vision and sight to begin to live our lives that way, where you wake up excited, expectant. Great things could happen today because I serve the king of the universe. And what you see for 2,000 years is there are men and women who've caught a glimpse of that and they've transformed our world. I did a study on that a couple of weeks ago. Just the change that has happened globally because men and women realize, are you kidding? No one has it better than us. Let's go proclaim this good news and transform our world. And they have for 2,000 years just as he said. And then lastly, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The Greek for oppressed can be translated bruised, broken, crushed. Here's why. John Eldridge has a book called Wild at Heart. And in that book, he says this, no one gets out of this life without deep woundedness. That we have an enemy that kind of checks us out and figures out what our Achilles heel is, our most sensitive spot, and then he tries to wound us deeply there so it messes with us for the rest of our life. And what I found in talking with people is he's right. You got a father that you could never meet his approval and it's left a hole in you. You had a mom that was not nurturing for you and that was the one thing that you really, really needed. You had a sibling or a son or a daughter who died way too early. You were abused, whatever it is. We have an enemy really good at cutting us in such a way, wounding us, bruising us, that for the rest of our life, that thing echoes out through our life. So now we're full of rage or vengeance. Now we're full of just fear of any deep relationship because we're worried, what if they knew? What if they found out? So we never have the depth of good fellowship, good things that we could have because we're always running from this fear. We're wounded in that way. And so what Jesus says is this. He says, I can heal you. I can heal you from that. I can take you and I can set you free from that. So you're not sensitive to it anymore. So people don't walk on eggshells around you. Don't mention this. Don't mention divorce. Don't mention family. Don't mention abortion. Don't mention, that. Don't mention those things because he, she, they'll go postal. Where you're healed from it. And even more than that, the Bible says you can actually become a healer because of that. It's 2 Corinthians 1. That where God has comforted you in your broken bruise-ness, you're able then 
to be a healer of other people. Instead of being this stagnant, septic thing that's growing worse and worse, you become now a conduit of this living comfort that spread to other people. It's brilliant and it's amazing. And for 2,000 years, people have been set free from their broken bruisedness, just as he said. So Jesus quotes this ancient prophecy. And then he does this, verse 20. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Notice how it slows down. The Bible is really good at telling you when to pay attention. Like, we don't need any of that information, but it's telling you to slow down. Something really incredible happened right here. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Slow down. Something just happened there. All eyes are fixed on him. Now, why? Is it because of the text he had just read? Yeah, partially. This text, this messianic text that Jesus read, super well known at this time. People would have it memorized. They knew this text because they were waiting for a deliverer, okay? It would be like me quoting John, 6, John 3, 16 like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him and then stopping, what would you say to me? Time out, you left out a part. You left out the end of that, that whosoever believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. Matt, you left out a very important part of that verse. That's what you'd say. Well, that's what Jesus just did. That's why it slows down. That's why every eye is fixed on him because he left out part of the prophecy and he hands the scroll back. That's why the whole story just slows down. So what did he leave out? Let me show you. Here's what Luke 4.19 says. It ends by saying, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here's what the scroll of Isaiah says in Isaiah 62, 61 verse two. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. What did Jesus leave out? Vengeance, wrath. He left that out. Now, why would Jesus leave that out? It's an and, it's a conjunction. It's supposed to stay together. Jesus just truncates Isaiah 61.2 and hands the scroll back and everyone's like, wait a second. Why did he do that? Is it because Jesus is the nice guy and God is the angry guy in the Old Testament? Is that why? No, not at all. Here's why. Here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, you can have the good news. You can have liberty. You can have sight. You can have freedom from those things that oppress you, that keep you in bondage, that destroy you. And I'll take the wrath. That's what Jesus is saying. He truncates that phrase right there because he's saying, you get the good news. I take the vengeance and wrath. It's Romans 8, 3. What God could not do through the law because of weakness of flesh. You and I were weak. 
Well, good news, Jesus the Son has done it and he has crushed sin, Romans 8, 3. It's Isaiah 53, verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was crushed for my iniquities. That's what he does. I'll give you the Lord's favor because I'm taking the wrath. Matt, Matt, you get the Lord's favor and I'll take the wrath for your sin, for how you've lied and deceived and bullied and hurt and been selfish and been greedy and been uncaring and damaged my creation. I'll take the wrath for that and you get the favor. That's what he's doing right here. Edgewater, this is an amazing thing. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, we get the Lord's favor because Jesus took the wrath. And here's the deal. You'll either receive the gift of the Lord's favor because of Jesus's work or the wrath remains. That's the only two choices there are. You'll either receive the Lord's favor or the wrath remains. So there's this book at the end of the Bible. It's called Revelation. If you've read it, it can seem like a scary book and, and people do weird things with the book of Revelation, right? They see the number 666 and then they make like Satan sneakers or something. They just do weird things with it, okay? Because it's a strange book, no doubt about it. But Revelation 19, it kind of sums up all this in one little crazy idea about what supper we will go to. The first supper is called the Lamb Supper. And it says this, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. There is going to be an epic party. We're gonna party like it's 1999, okay? <laughs> an epic party in eternity where every tribe, every tongue, every nation is gathered together and we celebrate. Brilliant. That's feast number one. Those that have received the Lord's favor have an invitation punched by Jesus himself. But there's a second feast, a second supper. And this is a war feast, very different. Look at this. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. That's a very different feast because the wrath remains. You'll either receive the favor of the Lord, the free gift that he gives to all who believe in him, or the wrath remains. It's why Revelation ends this way. It's actually a very evangelical book. It ends 22 verse 17. So the bride says, come, come everyone that's thirsty, come drink. You're all invited. The door is open. Come to the Lamb's Supper. Come receive the Lord's favor. It's one or the other. Well, Matt, what do I do? I think there are three groups of people that need to respond to this. The first group is people that have never believed in Jesus Christ. 
never received his favor. Never said he is the king and he's my savior and I trust that he took the wrath and he's given me his favor. He took what I deserved and he's given me what he earned by his death, burial, and resurrection, what we celebrate today. What do you need to do? The Bible says repent and be baptized. It's over and over in the book of Acts. Repent just means this, change your mind. You thought Jesus was a cosmic killjoy. You thought he was against you. You thought he was trying to take something from you. No, the reality is he is the good, generous king of the universe who says, I want you to be part of my family. I'll take all the wrath that you deserve so you can have my favor and be part of my kingdom. That's where repentance is. Change your mind about God, about Jesus, about what you are. You need it. And then it just says, be baptized. That is a walking out of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You do that yourself. That's the first group. Second group, people that know Jesus and have walked away from him. And you need a moment. So when I was 20 years old, I grew up in the church. I knew all the stories, all that. I walked away about teenage time. And then when I was 20, I needed a moment. And that moment was being baptized. And I came forward and I was baptized and something clicked in my mind. I can't explain it. I don't understand it. Just something, it was the moment that I needed where I knew my sins had been forgiven. They've been washed away. Old things are gone. Behold, all things have become new. It was like it was pressed into my heart that day. We all need a moment. So maybe for you, you know Jesus, but you've wandered for him, from him. And today could be your moment where you say, okay, I'm recommitting. And there's a third group of people. You're doing really well. You're following Jesus. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're loving it. Things are great. And for you, baptism is the next step. It's obedience to the king. Hey, he saved me by his life, death, and resurrection. And now he's asked me to be baptized and he's my king now. So I'm going to obey him and I'm going to be baptized. That's how you respond. And so for us, Easter is a celebration of baptism. How important it is to those three groups of people. How this can be a moment. And so we invite you right now. We're gonna all stay here and we're gonna welcome you into the family of God as you get baptized. So if you're in one of those three groups, come forward. You can line up behind uh, baptism on this side or you can line up on a baptism on this side, whichever side you want to. And then we're going to welcome each of you to the family of God, baptizing you in the name of the Father and the Son and His Spirit. And our prayer is, as you get baptized, your life transforms. That the old is put away. And all things become new for you. That you have that moment. That we all need, we all need a moment like that. So if that's you, stand up. Come on up. We will welcome you to the family of God. And we do this every Sunday as well. If you're wondering, if you're saying, I don't know if I'm gonna miss the boat today. No, we do this every Sunday. And any day that you decide is a good day for us. Just Easter is a special, special day to do it. It's a reliving of the life 
and death and resurrection of King Jesus.